provides for his people. All right, Matthew chapter 26 is where we're going to be headed. So if you want to take out your Bibles, if you don't have one, there should be one in the seat pocket in front of you. We're going to be picking up in verse 31 as you guys head towards Matthew 26, where prayerfully we'll finish out this chapter today. Let me just remind you as you head that way that in chapters 21 through 27, what we essentially have is the rejection of the king. Uh, Matthew's uh, gospel can be broken down into different sections. We uh, begin with him being introduced to the world at large, but then quickly Jesus was uh, resisted. And now what we've seen in these chapters is uh, Jesus is not only resisted, but he is flat out rejected in chapters 21 through 27. But it didn't start that way. Chapter 21 actually started with a big party. He had his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And just as we sang the opening song uh, this morning, people cried in the street, Hosanna, save now we pray. They were excited about Jesus. And what they were most excited about is Jesus coming in and laying the smack down on the Romans. They were prepared for him to come out and drive out their enemies, to make his enemies his footstool. But they were quite surprised by the end of that chapter 21 when his first place to visit wasn't uh, the Romans and their uh, authority, but instead the church. He headed straight into the temple and began by cleaning out the temple courts. And so he overturned the tables. He drove off the money changers, the people taking advantage of God's people. That's where he began. Now, this caused the, the uh, officials and leaders of the Jewish uh, community to come to him and say, on what authority are you doing this? And Jesus, needing not to answer them at all, but instead he decides to give them three answers. He says, I get my authority from the Father and from the Son and from the Holy Spirit. And so in chapter 22, he shares three parables to show where his authority is derived. Now then, chapter 23, Jesus turns the tables on them again, only this time spiritually and emotionally. He turns the tables and begins to pronounce woes upon these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. And he says, woe to you, these things are going to take place. And he pronounces eight different woes upon the religious community. Now, as Jesus leaves this scene and he's walking back to Bethany where he's staying with a family and friends, it, his disciples come up to him in chapter 24 and they say, hey, all that woe stuff sounded really bad. Uh, when is this going to take place? Can you give us a little bit of a highlight to when these things are going to happen? And so in chapters 24 and 25, we have the final teaching of Jesus recorded in Matthew's gospel. There, and it's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus taught this on the Mount of Olives. And so we see Jesus sharing with them what the end times are going to look like for not only the Jewish community, but the church at large and for those left behind during the tribulation. Now, in chapter 26, where we pick back up, we find that this, these same group of religious leaders are now uh, plotting to kill Jesus. And so we see the story advancing of the rejection of the king. Now, a, a highlight in this, or, or maybe a low light, if you will, that we're going to look at today, we'll, we'll hit this throughout several sections today, is we'll actually see the spiral of sin in the life of one apostle Peter. Peter, who's going to be so bold and brazen to say he's not going to fall, will actually find that throughout the chapter, his fall didn't happen all at once. As we might like to think, we fall into sin or we run into sin. But the reality is a sin, especially major sins, take place over the course of time. It's a spiral of events that happen. And so we'll highlight those as we pick back up in verse 31. So verse 31 reads, and then Jesus said to them, 
all those, all, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Jesus begins by sharing with them prophecy from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. He continues this theme that's happened throughout Matthew's gospel of fulfillment. That's the key word is Jesus came to fulfill prophecy, fulfill the word of God, even to his sheep being scattered. And so in verse 32, they, he continues and says, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, I've mentioned this to you before, but I love this about the Lord, is he never mentions his death without also mentioning the resurrection. He always includes hope along with this seemingly dark time of him being crucified. And so he mentions the resurrection here again, but then what I also wanted to pull out for you is he tells them, I will go before you to Galilee. Do you realize that any place Jesus asks you to go, He's not telling you to go out there alone. In fact, what he tells us is, I'm going to go uh, before you. It's awesome to have Jesus as a co-pilot. In fact, I like him leading and me following a step or two behind. But, but here's what I like even better, is he goes ahead of you to actually make straight the paths, to smooth out things before we ever even get there. And so it takes away some of the fear. This is what Jesus is saying. I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. Now then, verse 33, And Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you this night that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so, and so said all the disciples. And so we see the first beginnings in the stumbling of Peter. It doesn't start with him just simply denying the Lord. It actually begins here where he is overconfident in his own flesh. What is, he's the first one to stand up and say, look, Lord, if everybody else scatters, if they all leave, I am not going to be that guy. Now, this actually didn't begin right here in this passage, but if you go all the way back to Matthew chapter 16, I'll set the scene for you. Uh, here, Jesus is teaching in Matthew 16 in front of a Caesarea uh, Philippi. And it's this area that has this large cliff face, and Jesus talks about the gates of hell will not prevail against you. But he asks his disciples before that an important question. He says, who do men say that I am? And some of the disciples pipe up and say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Jeremiah the prophet or Elijah the prophet. But then he, he turns and he says, okay, now who do you say that I am? Which, by the way, is a question that each and every one of us have to answer, either in this life or or the next? Who do you say Jesus is? And so he asks this question to his disciples, and Peter, being bold and brazen, stands up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus is excited at this answer. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't tell this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed it. And so Pete gets a big old pat on the back. Good job, Peter. You answered the question right. No doubt his chest is puffed up. But then what Jesus proceeds to do is tell them what is to happen to the Christ, <laughs> that the Son of God is to actually be taken away, and he is to be killed, sacrificed for the sins of the world. Now, to this, Peter is not nearly as excited about. In fact, he goes on in uh, verse 22 of Matthew 16 to say, uh, not so, Lord, which, by the way, is always a contradiction of terms. I don't know about you, but I've told the Lord not so several times, and uh, that just doesn't happen if he is your Lord. 
The term Lord means master. So if he is your Lord, don't argue with him about what he's telling you is going to take place. So Jesus quickly turns to Peter, who he just praised a few minutes before, but as he denies him, he says, get behind me, Satan. So Peter goes from being uh, vaulted, is being uh, praised at knowing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Blessed are you, Peter, to being told, uh, hey, get behind me, Satan. So I don't know if you have any of those moments in your life for high to low moment with Jesus, but Peter has this very same experience. But I share that story with you to say that ultimately the issue for Peter is he was denying a part of Jesus. And if you deny a part of him, you have denied all of him. This is not the buffet that you get to walk through and pick what you do and do not like in Jesus Christ. It is an all or nothing arrangement. And so for Peter, his issue was he was confident that he could overcome this scenario. He was confident that he could resist while all others were going to fall. But the reality is, uh, for each of us, we are not immune to sin. <laughs> we might want to be, we might desire to be, but we all have the same SIN problem. And if we try to attack it without the transformational power of the Holy Spirit, we are fighting a losing battle. That's just the truth. And so the truth is, uh, but by the grace of God, there go I. Whenever you look at someone that has stumbled or fallen in sin, it is important to remember that without the protection and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are all just a couple steps away from whatever that thing that turns you off. Not the most popular thing to share, but it is uh, no doubt true. And so we see this is the way for Peter. Now, all the others join in. They're not going to fall either. And yet we continue on, and we see in verse 36, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. Now Jesus is coming back to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's located right there on the face of the Mount of Olives, this beautiful garden setting. But what the word Gethsemane actually means is olive press. So if you look and see how it's literally translated, it's olive press. And now it's interesting that olives... In order to obtain the oil from the olives that is so valuable, they must first be crushed. And what we find is uh, throughout the Old Testament, what is a picture of the Holy Spirit but uh, oil? And we find that the thing that we all need in order to actually be able to navigate in this life and be with God for all of eternity is the Holy Spirit. But in order for us to have the Holy Spirit, uh, someone had to be crushed. And so we see Jesus Christ here in the place called uh, Olive Press, literally going to put his life on the line to be crushed. Not only crushed, but then the second stage of olives is once they are crushed and that initial oil comes out, the olives are then uh, pressed again to get a second letting of oil out of them. And so we see Jesus in this uh, garden scene. He's not only going to be crushed, but he is going to be pressed, and he's going to be squeezed. And then finally, lastly, what we find in uh, olives, what they do is they take the mashed parts, the parts that are squished, and they take them and they scrape them off of that olive wheel, and then they use them for heating. I share that because every single part of the olive is used for some type of good. And this same thing we find is true uh, in the life of Jesus Christ, that every part of his crushing and his pressing and his being mashed is all used for the good of us. And that is also true in our lives, by the way. When you are crushed and you are pressed and you are weighed down, understand that no piece of that is going to be wasted by Jesus. 
He is going to find a way to use every single bit of your pain, of your suffering, of all the things that you feel like you've just been mashed and ground down about. If you let him, he will scrape those things off and he will use those to the good of those who are called according to his purpose. That's a promise. Now we see Jesus is here in this garden scene and it's interesting to me how uh, God paints the pictures of gardens from the beginning of our Bible all the way to the end. Life, we remember, starts in Genesis 1 in a garden, in the Garden of Eden. And if you go all the way to Revelation chapter 22, what you find is that God, as he makes the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, it's also known as the Garden City. Life is going to begin in a garden and end in a garden, and yet right here smack in the middle of our Bible, we have life being made possible for us as people in a garden. Because in Genesis chapter 1, we find, actually chapter 3, we find that uh, Adam rebels in the Garden of Eden. And what we find here is Jesus is going to actually submit in the Garden of Gethsemane. Adam is going to hide from God in the Garden of Eden. And what we find is Jesus, he who knew no sin but became sin for us, is going to bear all for God in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then thirdly, we see in the Garden of Eden, because of our own sin problem, the sword was driven down to keep us away from the tree of life so that people wouldn't be forever in sin in their life. That's why God drives the sword to keep mankind out. And what we find is in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Peter draws his sword, what does Jesus tell him? Put it back away. The sword is sheathed in the Garden of Gethsemane so that all can have access to the tree of life. And so we see these beautiful pictures in this garden scene. Now then, to continue in verse 36, Jesus says, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, those would be James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply depressed, distressed. And then in verse 38, he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And so we find that Jesus is exceedingly sorrowful. He is broken down about what is getting ready to take place. And I think it's important to point out that he knows what has to happen and has had to happen from the very foundation of the earth. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 says that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. That this plan was actually put in place. And by the way, he wasn't forced into this. He volunteered out of love. He loved us so much, he volunteered for this very role. And so when we look at this free gift of salvation, and it is free, you can't work for it, you can't do anything for it, you can't volunteer enough for the gift of salvation. It is free for you and I to accept, but it was all at a very costly price. It cost Jesus everything. He had to empty himself in order to come to us. He had to be uh, pressed and crushed for you and I. And so we see this free gift is something that was very costly at the same time. Now then in verse 39, we continue and we see, and he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so Jesus Hitting his knees, he cries out to the Father, is there any other way? I mean, there's got to be another way. Surely they can just go to the right church. I mean, wouldn't that be the best way? They could just be really good people, especially at Christmas time. I mean, people love 
you know, to give at Christmas. Wouldn't that be enough? They could be really kind to their neighbor. Isn't there some kind of way uh, other than this? But the reality is uh, what the Apostle Paul spells out for us in Romans chapter 6 is that the wages of sin is death. There is no other payment except for blood. It must be let to take care of our sin. And from the time of the Egyptians at Passover, this very feast that they're getting ready to celebrate, the only way for them to survive the touch of death was the blood of the lamb. The lamb had to have blood spilled and put over the doorpost. And so what we find is that here Jesus in the Garden of Eden, he is perfectly submissive even to the point of death. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is some kind of obedience. And so what we find is this is not the name it and claim it that everybody likes to get excited about. This is a name it and trust Jesus. I'm going to name this and trust, not my will. Because, by the way, I've got all kinds of things I'd like to have happen. I tell it to him all the time. But, but the key piece of this is it's not my will. It's your will be done, Father. And so this is the piece Jesus has down pat. He's trying to lay it out there for us, what it could look like in our lives. And then in verse 40, And then he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came, and he found them asleep again, and their eyes were heavy. In verse 44, So he left them, and he went away again and prayed a third time, saying these same words, and then he came to his disciples, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? And so we see the second issue for uh, the apostle Peter in his sin spiral is first he was overconfident in his flesh, and secondly, when he should have been praying, he was sleeping. And I don't know about you, but have you ever tried to read your Bible? Have you noticed what happens? Immediately we start to get sleepy. Or if you've ever tried to have quiet time, I don't know about your house, but my house seems to get louder every time I have quiet time. A floor creaks, an alarm goes off, the cat makes some horrible noise, I'm pretty sure it's a hairball. I don't know what it is, but there's something always happens every time we try to get quiet time away with Jesus. Or you begin to pray, what happens is the, the eyes start to get heavy, we get a little tired. Now isn't that amazing that this is how we are with anything to do with Scripture, and yet, have you guys watched the Olympics lately? I mean, Unbelievable. Yesterday, I'm watching, uh, I'm watching archery with my brother. I, I, don't even know, I don't even know anything about archery. I have no idea, and I'm not a fan of Turkey or Italy. And yet, I'm cheering now for a little a, a Turkish guy that looks like Harry Potter to hit the, the target in the middle. I'm like, yes, Turkey, get it. You, yes. I'm so excited about Turkey winning a gold medal. I wasn't sleepy during uh, archery. And I don't even know anything about a bow and arrow. But the reality is, uh, my flesh is so weak when it comes to the things of the Spirit. My flesh loves things that are of the flesh. It gets very excited, wide awake for things of the flesh. I mean, put on an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, and I'm watching that bad boy. But any time it comes to something of the Spirit, it's amazing how weak we become. That's precisely what Jesus is addressing here with these guys. And so Peter sleeps, 
as Jesus is praying, but I want to also call out that in Luke chapter 22, um, Luke mentions that they slept out of sorrow. Have you ever been too depressed to pray? Have you ever been so heartbroken about a situation you could not even utter words? The only thing you could do was close your eyes and hope for a new day. That's precisely where Luke shares these guys were at. They weren't jazzed about the Olympics. They were upset about what was taking place to their Lord and Savior. They couldn't believe. They'd left their career, by the way, for this. And so they were depressed, too depressed to pray. But I want to point out to you that uh, this as well, that prayer is not only for petition, but it's also for protection. What does Jesus tell these guys? You need to pray lest you enter into temptation. That we are really good at giving Jesus a list of all the things we would like for him to do for us. But what prayer is also for, and he's fine with the list, by the way. I don't want to, you know, disparage the list. Go ahead and give it to him. But it is also there for our protection. I believe that as we pray, literally hedges of protection are placed around us, protecting us. And that's precisely what we find here in the life of Jesus. Now, it doesn't look like protection as he's getting ready to get carted off to the cross. But understand that God is all about giving good gifts, that for the good of Millions upon millions of people, Jesus is going to be taken to the cross. The question is, do I have enough trust in him that he will take care of me even in these times? Even when I can't understand what he's up to, do I believe in him enough to know that he only gives good gifts? Now then, continuing on, at the end of verse 45, he says, Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Now rise, let us be going, seeing as my betrayer is at hand. You know what? I love this because here's Jesus, and he doesn't say what I would have said about these guys who slept while he prayed. I would have just said, you losers can just stay there sleeping. I'm leaving. But instead, he actually gathers these guys and takes them with him. He's not mad or upset with them. He collects them, and he takes them with him along Now, I also wanted to point out that as Jesus kneels, he is able to stand in front of his accusers. Let's continue on with verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, and with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And kissed him, and Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? And so Jesus is able to stand in the face of Romans because he first knelt before his heavenly Father. If you ever wonder how you could possibly stand in front of your enemy, whatever that thing is that is so uh, big that you cannot figure out how you're ever going to face it, uh, the key is in kneeling. (laughs) Kneel before you stand. Now then, verse 47, we see that a multitude came, Uh, John tells us that a cohort, a cohort is 600 Roman soldiers, showed up to arrest uh, Jesus, an itinerant carpenter preacher who also had three of his sleepy friends. They get arrested by 600 Roman soldiers that are armed. This makes a lot of sense. Now, Judas, what we find is he was paid the 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus, which he does here in verse 49. 
He kisses Jesus so that they could identify who Jesus was. He had to do this because uh, what Isaiah tells us is Jesus had no form or comeliness. He looked just like every other Jewish guy. And so the only way they could identify him was someone from the inside to actually uh, pick him out. And so this was Judas, in fact, that did it. Now then in verse 50, I love the way Jesus responds. He says to him, friend, why have you come? I mentioned it to you last week, but I think it, it holds true that Jesus didn't look at Judas with anger or with disdain, but instead with heartbreak. Like, friend, you had an opportunity to turn. And this is true, by the way, for each and every one of us. When we're confronted with some kind of temptation, what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is that every temptation the Lord gives a way out. I'm going to go there and, and read it really quickly for you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So I believe as much as Jesus was loving Judas by calling him friend, he was also giving him one last chance to repent. You've got one final chance to get away, to run, as Paul says. And this is, holds true for us when we are faced with temptation. What God is telling us is, I am going to be faithful to you. Even when you're unfaithful, I'm going to be faithful. And in every situation, I'm going to give you an out where you need to run from that sucker. And that's precisely what Jesus is giving Judas another opportunity to enjoy. Now, what I also want to share is that Judas looked at the grace of God and he wasted it. Now, God's grace is unending. It is uh, all-powerful. It, it, it flows fle- freely from him. But at some point in time, we are going to run out of the grace of God in our own individual lives. It may be when you draw your last breath that you run out of God's grace, that no longer do you have an opportunity to repent, but people can waste it. It could also happen even in this life. If you go back to your Old Testament, you look at the life of Pharaoh. As Moses comes to him, ten times he comes to him telling Pharaoh, let my people go so you don't have to experience these plagues. And we see the grace of God as he relents over and over again. But what we're told is time and time again, Pharaoh's heart grew hard. His heart grew hard until finally at the end, what we see is in God hardened his heart eventually so much of allowing your heart to grow harder and harder and harder with each denial of his grace, God finally says, okay, I'm going to set it in place. Now, if that panics you a little bit and you're wondering, man, I wonder if I've exhausted God's grace. I wonder if I, he's going to give up on me. Here's the good news. If you're worried about whether or not you've exhausted God's grace, you haven't exhausted it yet. <laughs> Just the very fact that you're worried that you're not going to get another chance means that You've got another chance. But I would also tell you that today is a day of salvation. Today is a day to turn. There is no better day than right now to turn and go back to him. Now then, in verse 51, And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And so we're told that one of these disciples takes out his sword and lops off the ear of the servant. 
that's there with the high priest. Now, I love this, that none of the gospel accounts tell us who this is until you get to John. And John says, it was Peter. I, that's such a guy thing to do. Like, everybody was quiet about it, and John's like, look, I'm just going to tell you. It was Peter. So apparently, Peter was a way better fisherman than he was a swordsman. Because you know, when he drew that sword out, he was not aiming for the servant's ear, but aiming for his head. So clearly, he's not a very good shot. And you can just imagine this scene. Like, now there's this dude's ear laying on the ground. <laughs> Jesus picks up the ear, there's a little wipe off of it, and then slaps it back on the guy's head. Like, what? This is crazy. So what we find here is that Jesus heals Malchus, the servant of the high priest Caiaphas's ear, uh, right there in front of everybody. Now, all that story sounds exciting, but I want to share with you that um, I think we have to be very careful how we handle the Word of God. It is, by the way, the only offensive weapon that we have in our possession. Every other uh, piece of the armor of God is defensive except for God's Word, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And what I think is uh, quite possibly the miracle that Jesus has to perform more than any other miracle regularly is healing people who have been swiped by the Word of God. That God's own people take out His Word and begin to just slice away at one another. And it was not at all what he intended. That in fact, the, the enemy that we're looking to defend ourselves against, against our principalities and powers, it's this whole demonic realm that he gives us his word in order to defend ourselves against. Instead, we take his word out and we begin to just... And Jesus has to spend all this time taking pieces and parts and putting it back on people. And so what we find is Peter, because he was found in a place where he was not praying, he was instead sleeping, he was quick. This is the third thing that Peter does. He was quick to go to action instead of devotion. He was slow on devotion, but he was ready to start slicing people for Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been in another church that might be like this. None of you guys are like this because you're all super holy. But one of the least attended things that you will find is prayer meeting. People do not come out for prayer meetings. They just don't. But man, if you tell a bunch of guys you're getting a chance to punch somebody in the nose in Jesus' name, you'd be amazed how many people show up. Like, in Jesus' name, I'm ready to smack somebody. This is going to be awesome. And so often we are quick to take action when God actually says, I want you to start with devotion. There might be times where you have to step into place and you have to actually, uh, you know, handle things physically. But how are you doing in your prayer life? Are you prayed up before you enter into that thing? And so what I wanted to share with you on the screen was without prayer, careless action takes the place of much-needed devotion. That without praying through these things and being diligent to seek the Father, that so often we take careless actions because we were not devoted to prayer. And this is what take, took place for Peter. Now in verse 53, Or do you not think... Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Now, I did a little bit of math for you in case you don't know what a legion is, but in the Roman army, a legion is 6,000 Roman troops. And so what Jesus is saying is, do you not think I can't call 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 angels for you keeping score at home that Jesus is saying that by my word can be called to come to my defense. Now, if you go back in your Old Testament to 2 Kings uh, chapter 19, what you'd find there is a story about uh, King Hezekiah. 
And King Hezekiah is ruling over Jerusalem and Judea. And the entire city of Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrians. 185,000 troops surround Jerusalem. They're going to starve them out. And they make all kinds of blasphemous comments about God. And what Hezekiah does is he takes them, he just spreads them out there before the Lord. He says, Lord, this is what they're saying about you. And in one night, God sends one angel, and the next morning, 185,000 dead Assyrians surround Jerusalem. That's one angel. Can you imagine what 72,000 of these bad boys could do if Jesus says the word? Now, what he's really telling Peter is, don't you understand I can defend myself? So often, I think we spend time trying to defend Jesus and coming to his defense, and what he's really trying to say is, I want to come to your defense. How about you let me come to your aid? And not that I'm against defending the faith. I, I love Christian apologetics, but I think when it's done in a spirit of anger and hatred and wanting to attack one another, then we miss sight of the fact that Jesus can defend himself. He doesn't need you and I to start whipping the sword out and going to town. Now in verse 54, Jesus says, How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? And in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out against the robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And so what we see is Jesus points them back to where they should have stayed anchored the whole time, back to the word of God. Specifically, Isaiah chapter 53. So as I turn back there, I'm going to pick up in verse 5 for this section. I want to remind you that Isaiah wrote these words about the Messiah 700 years before he was born. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was laid upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid his iniquity on us all. I laid on him the iniquity of us all. In verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears was silent, and so he opened not his mouth. And what we see here in this passage is they were getting ready to lead Jesus before the high priest, exactly as prophecy spoke, a lamb to the slaughter. Now then in verse 58, but Peter, uh, excuse me, verse 57, and those who laid a hold of him led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and he sat with the servants to see the end. And so we see this uh, next stage in the spiral of the apostle Peter. He began by, uh, he began by being overconfident in his flesh, by not praying but sleeping, by being uh, quick to action and slow to devotion. But then here we see now he starts to follow Jesus at a distance. And this is the next stage that we have. As we begin to push him away, we, we begin to follow him at a distance. And this can easily happen if we are not careful. That we begin to be hurt, perhaps even by a congregation, a body, a fellow believer supposedly, other family, friends. And then what happens is instead of pressing into him, we begin to drift 
away from him. So here's Peter following at a distance. The writer to the Hebrews, however, gives us different instructions. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says this, Therefore we must give more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. What God's call to us is when we are hurt, when we're in these spots where it would be easy to drift away, that we are called to give more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. We are called to turn in and press into the word of God. Now then, verse 59, we see that the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. And so we see no one was found to testify against Jesus, but they started by giving Jesus a trial before the high priest at night. That's what we're told in Luke's account. And I bring that up to say that um, the Jewish council, they had some rules they were supposed to follow too, and one of them was they were not to gather for a trial at night. They began to compromise even what their own rules told them to do. And so what I wanted to bring up is that compromise always leads to corruption. As we begin to compromise things that we know we're supposed to hold fast to and to stay true to, it always leads to being corrupted completely and totally. Now then in verse 61, and, and they said, this fellow, these are the false witnesses, said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And so these false witnesses come forward and say, Jesus said he's able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, this is the commandment that they're, uh, that is being referred to here, and it's, it forbids people from bearing false witness. Now, oftentimes we hear this, we think that means you should not lie. It, th this means you should never tell a lie, and you know what? That's true. We should not lie. We are called to be truth tellers and truth speakers, but you know what these men uh, said? This was not a lie, <laughs> because Jesus, in fact, said this. But bearing false witness can also be misrepresenting correct information. These men came forward with correct information, but they came away with the wrong implication. And so this is so very dangerous for us, especially in the age of social media and texting. It is so easy to get wrong context, wrong implication, wrong understanding from little letters that are typed out in black and white. Why it's so very careful we have to be at what we say and how we communicate. And so these men came forward with good info, but wrong implication, knowing that what they were doing was twisting the truth around to show that Jesus was guilty. Now then in verse 62, And the high priest arose and said to him, do you, do you answer nothing? What is this these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard the, his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered him and said, He is deserving of death. And so they questioned Jesus. Are these things true that you say? Are you the Christ? And Jesus says, It's exactly as you said. 
Now, I find this fascinating because I've, I've been in places where people will say, look, Jesus in the New Testament never said that he was God. He never claimed to be God at all. And then I wonder, have you actually read the New Testament? Because everywhere I see Jesus claims he's God over and over and over again. He's making it clear. In fact, his message didn't change from the first day he shared it all the way till now. So he looks at these guys who are so upset and incensed at him, and he says, it's exactly as you said. And so the high priest cries out blasphemy, and he tears his clothes. But remember who the high priest was, Caiaphas, and who his father-in-law was, Annas, who was supposed to legally be the high priest. And it's the high priest's responsibility to take care of the temple courts. These are the very men that Jesus overturned the tables and the money changers. And what was really happening behind the scenes is Jesus hit them right in the pocketbook. He was after, he got after their money. He hurt them financially. And so they're ripping their clothes because of blasphemy. But the reality is they were busy taking advantage of the people committing blasphemy themselves. That reminds me that uh, my sin always looks worse on you than it does on me. <laughs> Amazing how that works. Verse 67, And then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? And so we're told that they put a, a bag over Jesus' head or a covering, a, a, a cloth, so he couldn't see where the punches were coming from, and they swung at him and they hit him where he could not even brace himself. It's brutal, and this is humiliating, and this is also uh, prophetic. I'm going to take you back to Isaiah 53 one more time. In verse 2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of the dry ground, and he has no form or comeliness when we see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him, and he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. For we hid as if it were our faces from him. He was despised, and, not and we did not esteem him. And surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. And so we see Jesus here being smitten and afflicted, and the only person who could stop it was him. He had all the power to say, shut this down now. And yet he did not. And this was brutal, and this is violent. And I didn't put a picture up here of what Hollywood says Jesus' broken and battered face looked like because I wanted you to conjure it up in your own mind's eye and not be taken away by what Hollywood says it looked like. I guarantee you it was far worse than what even we can imagine. Now this seems, uh, this seems very bloody and very violent, and it is because so is our sin. Our sin is bloody and it is violent and it is a mess and he took it all upon himself not to deal with sin holistically and generically like we like to talk about. I think oftentimes we can talk about sin and say, God's taken away all the sin in all the world for everyone. And we hear words like this with inflection like that and we begin to, we begin to make it very generic. The reality is he did take care of sin for everyone broadly but the truth is he, take, he took care of all sins specifically and individually, <laughs> meaning for you and I directly. And so when we see uh, scenes like this with him being battered and beaten and spit on and humiliated, it's important for us to remember it was for 
me. It was for us on an individual basis. Now then, in verse 69, and Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, you are also, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were, who were there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath, saying, I do not know the man. In verse 73, and a little later, those who stood by Peter came up and said to him, surely you are one of them, for your speech betrays you. You see, Peter, we're told in Luke's account, not only did he follow Jesus from afar off, but he was also busy warming his hands by the fires of the enemy. That's the next stage in the spiral for Peter. What began with him just following afar off, he was now warming himself by the enemy's fire. But here's the thing. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you do not fit in by the fire of the enemy. Your speech will betray you. You will not be able to stay in that spot for long. For Peter, he literally had a dialect. He sounded like he was from Clark County, right? He had a little bit of, he just had a little bit of hillbilly in him. And they knew that he was from that northern area, that hillbilly part of Israel. They're like, wait a minute, your speech, you don't sound like one of us educated people from Jerusalem. You're from the Galilee. And he tried to deny it, but, but the reality is he didn't fit. And the same thing is true for you and I. That as believers in Jesus, no matter how much you try to fit in by the fire of the enemy, you will not. You will get called out. And here's the other thing. It, it doesn't mean that you can't still fall to the hands of the enemy. But what it does mean is that you will not have peace. There will be no peace for you as you stand and try to warm yourself by the fire of the enemy. You will feel convicted uh, repeatedly. It's a miserable spot to be in. I can tell you from personal experience. It is not a place to be. Now then in verse 74, and then he, speaking of Peter, began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And so here we see Peter going back to being a sailor again. Apparently he didn't forget all the words of how sailors speak. He began to swear and curse and say, I don't know this man. And so we find just how far the Apostle Peter has fallen from grace in such a short amount of time. So proud, so overconfident that, hey, I'm never going to turn my back upon you, Lord, until eventually he began to sleep more than what he prayed. And then he was so quick to swing a sword in action. I'm going to defend you, Jesus. And now he's distanced himself from God. The sword swinging didn't work out the way I'd hoped. And now he's warmed his hands by the fire of the enemy and then gone to completely denying even knowing Jesus at all. I do not know the man. Now in verse 75, And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so he went out and he wept bitterly. Luke's account tells us that as he denied Jesus for the final time and the rooster crowed, Jesus looked up with a bloodied and battered face and he locked eyes with Peter. He caught a glimpse looking into the eyes of the very Savior that he just got done denying. You talk about a complete and total failure. That's precisely how Peter felt. But do you understand that's not the eyes Jesus looked at him with? He didn't look at him with eyes that 
we might think, out of anger or out of him being a failure or a flop. But instead, Jesus looked at him with eyes of understanding. How we know this is because Jesus already told him this was going to take place before it ever happened. Do you understand that God is never surprised by our sin? That it never catches him off guard? That at no point in time when you fail and you fall and you're so shocked that you had this massive failure in your life, God is not in heaven going, no, I mean you don't say. He surely didn't do that. I cannot believe that Peter did that. That is a shock. He never does it. He never says, oh, my self. All right, it'll take you a minute to get that. You can laugh later. At no, no point in time does God do that because he is never shocked or taken off guard by our sin. Jesus told Peter exactly what was going to happen. And so I believe as he looked him in the eye after that moment, he looked at him with complete and total understanding and love. And that right there tore Peter up more than any look God could have given him. He left, we're told here, he wept bitterly. That's the kind of weeping you have when you're convulsing, where you cannot get your breath back because he was so upset at himself. But the story doesn't end there for the Apostle Peter. That's not where we're going to close today, thankfully, because as Jesus was resurrected, as he rose himself up from the grave, do you understand that he wanted to see Peter personally? In fact, in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, he tells him, hey, go tell the disciples that I'm headed to the Galilee. I'm going to go ahead of them, which, by the way, he'd already told them he was going to do. But he says, go tell the disciples and Peter. He calls Peter out specifically by name. Peter was one of the disciples. He would have been in that group. But he says, I want to make sure you tell Peter I'm going to be at the Galilee. And what we find is later on in the story, is that Peter went to the, or Jesus went to the Galilee, and what does he find? He finds Peter there fishing, going back to what he knew. I'm bummed out. I'm a failure. I'm a flop. I'm going to just go back and fish. And so Peter fishes there, but what he sees on the shores of the Galilee is the Savior of the universe, resurrected, making a nice fish breakfast. Peter jumps out of the boat, swims to see Jesus, and they proceed to have communion. They proceed to take communion together, fellowship together. And Jesus three times asked Peter, do you love me? All three times Peter's broken up and says, Lord, I, you know I love you. You know I do. But three times he asked, not because Jesus didn't know the answer to the question, but because he had to get Peter to believe the answer to the question. And I think how often he looks at us in our lives. We can only see the jacked up mess. Lord, I've let you down. I'm a liar. I'm a betrayer. I'm a deceiver. I'm all this list of things that I want to hold against myself. And what Jesus is doing is he's looking at us and says, yeah, I know. I'm not surprised by any of this. But how about this? How about you come and let's have breakfast? Let's just enjoy communion together. And so as we get ready to take communion, I want to remind you of that, that that is what this is all about. That's what this time is all about. It's about us dining with him. 
about us taking our junk, our mess, our things that we're sure he can't deal with in any way and laying it at his feet. He already knows. He's not shocked. And so I'm going to encourage you guys to come forward after I pray and take the elements as Jake and Michaela play for us. But I want you to reflect upon that. Reflect that he has intentionally sought each and every one of you out by name. I know that because you're here today. By name he sought you out, and he wants to dine and have communion with you, with us together. And so, Jesus, we thank you, and we praise you for your sacrifice. We praise you that you've told uh, people like Peter ahead of time that he was going to sin and fail and fall, and you are not shocked in any way, shape, or form by it. But I also thank you that you didn't leave him in that spot. (laughs) You could not wait to get to him and restore him individually, specifically, by name. Thank you, Father, that you called us by name to restore us individually, specifically, dealing with our issues, not leaving us out there off to ourselves, but wanting to deal with us together, to dine with us, to commune with us. So, Lord, we thank you, and we praise you for all that you're up to in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage you guys to come up and take the elements, take them back. We'll enjoy those together after this song. The Father 
Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is addressing a church in Corinth that were getting communion wrong for a long time. I wonder how often I've gotten it wrong. <laughs> but he wants to reset it for them, and in verse 23 he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so that top tab, you should be able to get access to the bread. If you need help, somebody should help you next to you. And Father, we thank you, and we praise you for your broken body. Something that we are so not deserving of, and it's emotional, and it's hard for us at times because um, we know how much we've let you down. We feel an awful lot like Peter most days. We set off to do good, and then we, somewhere along the line, began to warm ourselves by the enemy's fire, and we just missed it, Lord. Thank you for looking at us longingly and willingly. Let us take part of your body before you ever even cleaned us up, <laughs> before we ever were even cleansed by the blood. You allowed us to partake in the body. And so it's with this body we look forward to dining with you. In Jesus' name. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the blood of the new covenant. This do in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Lord Jesus, we take this cup which symbolizes your blood of the new covenant, which we get to very humbly take with you. We get to partake with you. And if we partake in your death through this action, then that also means we get to partake in your resurrection. Oh, Jesus, we are so thankful for that. Thank you for cleansing us from the inside out. 
thank you for what this symbolizes, which, which is your, your perfect blood being given in exchange for ours that is so flawed. We take this in Jesus' name. And so with that, we get to stand gloriously in his resurrection. Let's stand up and sing together. Your head, weary sinner, rivers just ahead. Down the path of forgiveness, salvation's waiting there. You built a mighty fortress, ten thousand burdens high. Love is here to lift you up, here to lift you high. If you're lost and wondering, Stumbling in like a prodigal child See the walls start crumbling Let the gates of glory open wide All who've strayed and walked away Unspeakable things you've done Fix your eyes on the mountain Let the past be dead and gone Come all saints and sinners you can't outrun God Whatever you've done can't overcome The power of the blood If you're lost and wondering Come stumbling in like a prodigal child See the walls start crumbling The gates of glory open wide You're lost and wrecked again Come stumbling in like a prodigal child See Let the gates of glory open wide. And the church says, Amen. Amen. All right. Let the gates of glory as we head down to tacos. All right. Thank you guys so much for coming. Now, if you need prayer at all, I'll be hanging around uh, up front. Don't forget to join us for lunch as we enjoy fellowship together. And, you know, I, I'm not going to say at all because I promised I wouldn't that it's Olivia's birthday. And I'm a man of my word. And so I'm not even going to mention that she turned 17 today. I'm not going to say anything at all about that. So, you know, if you want to wish somebody happy birthday, you can. All right. God bless you guys.